Hello, welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast produced by the Heart Failure Society of America. Heart Failure Beat is designed specifically for clinicians who treat heart failure patients in the United States of America and around the world. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Priya Mapathy, an assistant professor of medicine and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And my name is Dr. Michael Beasley, assistant professor of medicine and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now let's get to our episode. All right, we're excited to be back with part two of our series on the 2022 highlights in heart failure. If you didn't already catch part one, where we heard from Michael on his new segment, Heart Failure Rounds, we had a fantastic interview with Dr. Mark Drosner talking about cutting-edge xenotransplantation and SGLT2 inhibitors. We highly, highly recommend you download and give it a quick listen. Yeah, it was such a pleasure to be able to talk to Dr. Drasner. And as a young junior faculty member, I always really enjoy hearing the wisdom of somebody who's been around for so much longer. You can kind of put these things uh, that we're talking about today and that we talked about in the last episode into perspective, uh, given his uh, wealth of experience and knowledge in the topic. Uh, it was really great. It was an amazing episode. And I want to say that I recorded the high points of everything he said into a little folder in my brain for easy reference. So um, definitely great interview and highly recommend for everybody in our community. So for today, we're excited to yet again be joined by yet another powerhouse cardiologist, current HFSA president, Dr. John Tierlink, director of heart failure and the echocardiography lab at the San Francisco Veterans Affairs Medical Center. John, Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Priya. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to be with you all on this podcast. We're so excited to have you here, John. And um, I just wanted to highlight a few of the trials that came out this year. And, you know, 2022 was a banner year for a novel class of agents, the myosin modulators. Uh, we had an opportunity to hear the clinical results accompanying these agents, such as the Mindtropes, Omicamtiv, Macarbol, in both the galactic and the meteoric heart failure trials. Omicamtiv did offer a significant benefit in terms of reducing the time to cardiovascular death or first heart failure events in patients with HFREF. However, the meteoric findings suggest that the drug didn't necessarily help overcome the day-to-day -day functional limitations in heart failure. So there are subtleties to this trial and probably niche populations that uh, this trial probably really affects the most. And as a heart failure community, as we strive to implement very powerful four-pillar guideline-directed medical therapy in our patients with HFREF, how do you see and where do you see Omicamtiv fitting in? Yeah, fantastic. You know, I think the, the first point is essential that the, the four pillars of therapy are absolutely crucial. Those are life-saving therapies, and we as a heart failure community need to embrace every process possible to get our patients on all four of those therapies at the maximally tolerated doses. So before we move on to verisiguat or omicamptomacarbol or any of our other therapies, we need to get those four on board. And that's absolutely crucial. Then as we move beyond that, I think it, you know one of the exciting things about omicamptomacarbol is that it is the only drug that was actually specifically developed for HFREF. Every other drug has been this kind of me too, oh, we'll also do it in heart failure. And it's actually also the only drug that specifically addresses the underlying pathophysiology in terms of decreased ejection fraction. 
As you alluded to, Galactic HF, which was a 8,256 patient trial, had among the best background therapy and device therapy, medical and device therapy of any of the contemporary trials, was done before the SGLT2 inhibitors were released, however. Now, historically, the beneficial effects of our heart failure therapies have been additive. This is especially the case since Omicamptomacarbal works ways and that are completely independent uh, of a different mechanism. So the main trial, as you alluded to, demonstrated a reduction in the overall endpoint of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalizations. It was an 8% reduction, which is a modest reduction in the overall endpoint. And then, as you also alluded to, the 276-patient Meteoric HF trial, that trial was only a 20-week therapy of omicamptivimacarbal, randomized two to one to placebo. And the endpoint in that trial was peak exercise capacity on a metabolic cart type exercise capacity that we do for our transplant patients, if you will. And there was no difference in terms of placebo or omicamptivimacarbal in that study. Now, this actually, to me, reinforces the concept that heart failure is actually a systemic disease. And that even in patients with HEFREF, increasing cardiac function does not necessarily increase exercise capacity. And as we have learned over a decade of, over decades of research, actually, some of which were performed by my late mentor, Dr. Barry Massey, skeletal muscle dysfunction is the primary abnormality that caused, that's related to exercise dysfunction in, in these patients. So it wasn't entirely surprising to me that Omicamptiv didn't improve exercise capacity. Then in terms of where it fits in, we saw lots of evidence in terms of that patients with worse, any indication of worse heart failure. So whether they had NOHA class 3, 4, whether they had an ejection fraction less than 30%, whether they had a lower systolic blood pressure, those patient groups all tended to do better with omicamptivimacarbal, such that their treatment effect was around a 16% treatment effect. So it, it definitely will fit in, but it's going to fit in after the four pillars get initiated. That's amazing, John. I feel like you're psychic and you've preempted so many of the questions that I had because really my last question was going to be, do you foresee future studies that focus on omicamptive and more advanced heart failure patients, maybe a better alternative for folks who are on current inotrope therapy or maybe an option for patients who may not be eligible for heart transplantation or durable mechanical circuitry support? And you spoke a little bit to that at the end of your answer. So that's a really important point. And I think kind of in that context, it is not only where it will fit in, but also how will it be utilized clinically and then where are the gaps in that, that clinical usage. So as I, I mentioned, the one of the advantages of omicamptomacarbal is it has no adverse effect on blood pressure, heart rate, potassium homeostasis, or renal function. So effectively, it can be added in at any time with the, the guideline-directed medical therapies because it won't interfere with their uptitration or initiation. So that's a real beneficial effect in terms of how it might be implemented. In terms of, there's kind of this middle ground, I think, with, with omicamptivimacarbal. The trial overall was positive. And so you could enroll, if you wanted to give omicamptivimacarbal to anybody with an EF less than 35% who had symptomatic heart failure, that would be still appropriate. Though I think to provide kind of the greater beneficial effect to the patient, here you need to kind of pick out one of those high-risk 
factors. So whether the EF's less than 30%, whether NUHA class three or four, any one of those will get you better effects. So where are those gaps? The Galactic HF trial excluded patients who were pre-transplant and things along those lines. So clearly that's a patient population where I believe that it, it could really have potential benefit. We need to do the trials and, and try to find out. Same thing with the mechanical circulatory support, as you alluded to in the question. So I think there are lots of potential new trials, but we actually have to wait for omicamptin carbol to be approved first. So the FDA will be meeting in February to determine whether it's approved or not. And when it is, then I look forward to having it as an opportunity to treat our patients with heart failure. So what an amazing discovery of very exciting time for us. And we'll see what the future holds, hopefully, as as the drug hopefully gets approved and is studied in, in larger classes and more niche populations. That was fantastic. So moving from one end of the contractility spectrum, let's go to the other. The heart failure community in 2022 also heard more about the cardiac myosin inhibitor, Mavicamptin, and the Valor and Explorer HCM trials. So I was wondering, John, if you know the Valor HCM trial reported improved symptoms, significantly uh, reduced need for septal reduction therapy among very symptomatic patients with obstructive HCM, but had a relatively short follow-up period. So given the current heart failure providers or familiarity with sort of one-time procedures, such as surgical myectomy, alcohol ablation, both therapies that have, you know, albeit longer track records, uh, relatively speaking, how do you envision myosin inhibitors being used in clinical practice on a day-to-day basis? As you mentioned, it's been just an amazing year for some the culmination of decades of some great basic science research. You know, the cardiac myosin inhibitors emerged from the same basic science and development platform as Omicamptin-McCarvel. And these are excellent examples of precision medicine targeting very specific cardiovascular diseases. So Valor HCM comes on the heels of Pioneer HCM, Explorer HCM, with these Mavicamptin trials. And those early trials laid the foundation then for this Valor trial. And as you pointed out, Valor took patients who were they thought were going to be eligible for septal reduction therapy and said, can we delay that or prevent that? And as you point out, the trial was relatively short in its follow-up, partly because the DMC was saying, hey, we saw such beneficial effects, we're going to have to stop the trial. So that's encouraging and that there was so much benefit in terms of the reduction in the gradient and an improvement in symptoms and a big decrease in the number of patients who actually had to go on to the septal reduction therapy. Where it fits in is important because actually when you had, there there were 152 patients screened in Valor, and these patients who were screened were all felt to be ready for septal reduction therapy. But then when they actually got to screening them, 24 of those 152 patients actually did not meet the septal reduction therapy guideline eligibility. So these were highly symptomatic patients who still couldn't get this therapy. So even if we consider septal reduction therapy as the definitive therapy, there are a lot of patients in whom they just can't actually undergo it. So this is meeting that unmet need. And in addition, it seems like it effectively delayed the progression of this disease. And so it was able to prevent or delay the septal reduction therapy 
and give the patients more symptomatic relief. Now, it's unclear how long these new therapies will actually influence this time course of disease. And as you point out, that's where longer-term follow-up will absolutely be crucial. Absolutely. No, that's that's amazing. So really, these sort of niche populations with an unmet need and uh, really amazing science that's come out from the bench to the bedside for these very cardiac-specific, sort of myocyte-specific, myosin-specific therapies. And I will say, just as a, as a question, you know, one caveat is by design, the myosin inhibitors lower contractility and decreases in EF less than 50% were encountered in the trial. Do you have any concerns that these therapies may switch one type of heart failure for maybe another type of evil? Or yeah, what do you think? Yeah. No, it, and this was the terror that was initially when this approach was, was initiated, there was such fear on people's minds of saying, will we go too far? And in fact, a decreased ejection fraction below 50%, which is the kind of cutoff that was used in the trials, was evident in the Mavicampton trials. So that did exist. And Valor HCM, two out of the 56 patients had an EF less than 50%. Both patients had no adverse events and resumed their dose after a period of discontinuation without any additional adverse events. Of interest, Mavicampton has, has clearly been FDA approved and is, and is available. In addition, there's an entire other development program that we, we heard about, have heard about recently as well, with the Afficampton. And Afficampton, in the Redwood HCM trial, we heard just recently that cohort three of that trial, which is now increasingly kind of severe HCM patients, Patients in that study also had significant improvements in their NYHA classes and, and decreases in their gradients. And so we have kind of a second agent online coming down the pipe that might actually be useful. And the Sequoia HCM trial is a outcomes trial that, that we're going to be able to see in terms of efficacy and understanding of the impact of this obstruction in patients with Afficampton. Afficampton has a little shorter half-life, so it may avoid some of the challenges from the longer half-life that we see with Mavicampton. It has a little different pharmacology. So we kind of have an embarrassment of riches coming down the pike in, in this regard, which is so excellent for these patients because they can be tremendously symptomatic. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your insights and sort of pulling the, the veil away from, you know, these sort of mystery, mystery agents, but exciting agents that are going to really revolutionize our field and I think really address some unmet needs. And, you know, it's such a delight talking to you, but I do have to share you with my, my co-host and I'll do that because I like him a lot. Uh, so I'm going to turn it over to Mike. Well, thanks, Priya. Uh, so now moving away from uh, some of the newer drugs that are on the scene in the heart failure community, we're going to revisit some of our old friends. And the last story of the year, which potentially some of us may think might be the biggest story to come out uh, in 2020 in the heart failure community, uh, involves the Strong HF trial. Now, the Strong HF trial was presented at the American Heart Association Scientific Sessions in November. Differently than what we just had been talking about, this wasn't a trial that was looking at new drugs, and it was really studying a, a means of prescribing and titrating the drugs that we know so well in order to see if we could achieve uh, superior outcomes by doing so in a more aggressive or more high-intensity way, uh, if you will. So the Strong HF trial, which was, uh, again, presented at AHA and was simultaneously published uh, in The Lancet, 
under title of safety, tolerability, and efficacy of uptitration of guideline-directed medical therapies for acute heart failure, was a trial that first looked at a population of patients that were admitted with acute heart failure. And these patients were then randomized one-to-one into either a group where they would receive usual care at the time of hospital discharge, or they would receive what was termed to be high-intensity care at the time of hospital discharge. Now, I'm referring specifically to guideline-directed medical therapies, and this trial did start in 2018, which was before we were using SGLT2 inhibitors so commonly. So the drug classes that were looked at in this trial, just to be clear, were beta blockers, renin-angiotensin system inhibitors, and mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. The goal of the high-intensity arm was to have patients on at least a half maximal dose or halfway to the optimal dose prior to hospital discharge. They then were followed up very closely in the community. They had a one-week follow-up for a safety check. Two weeks from the time of discharge, they followed up with a cardiologist. And at that point, were to be have those doses increased to optimal or maximally tolerated doses, again, of those three classes of guideline-directed medical therapy. These patients were then uh, seen uh, three sequential times thereafter in the clinic, again, for safety checks. And the primary endpoint of this trial was looking at uh, their risk of readmission to the hospital for heart failure, all cause death at 180 days uh, from that time of hospital discharge. So just six months from that index uh, hospitalization. So in total, there's about 1,000 patients that they randomized, about 500 or so in each arm. What the trial showed was that there was a significant reduction of symptoms in those that received the more high-intense care and uptitration of guideline-directed medical therapies. They had a much improved quality of life and uh, a reduced risk of all-cause death and heart failure hospitalization. So my question, John, to you is this, is that, you know, this is obviously something that I think probably most of us in the heart failure community really felt was likely, and we were always hoping to have some type of evidence to stand upon to really support our beliefs that, you know, aggressive uptitration of these drugs would be good for our patients. You know, it's always something that seems probably to be, you know, a source of frustration for a lot of heart failure cardiologists when we do come across patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and they're coming into our clinics after multiple decompensations with suboptimal dosing of these drugs. That being said, do you think that this trial, Strong HF, and the noise that's followed uh, from our community will have any change in, in clinical behavior of, of clinicians in our country and our patients achieve those uh, proper doses of therapies? Michael, that's a great question. And I think we're, we're running into the uh, timeless issue of hope versus reality. We certainly have the hope that the weight of multiple clinical trials would have demonstrated the importance of life-saving four pillars of GDFT can overcome such clinical inertia that, to which you, you kind of referred there. And I'll, I'll be put my nickel down in that I think strong HF provides even greater strength, if you will, pun intended, if you will, to the imperative to start these, these therapies. It's absolutely essential. You know, strong HF was stopped early by the Data Monitoring Committee because of the greater than expected between group differences. This strategy really worked. There was, as you mentioned, a 34% reduction in heart failure readmission or all-cause death up to day 180, We're driven mostly by this decreased heart failure readmissions. So I certainly hope it will lead to a change. That's my hope. 
unfortunately, there is just this substantial inertia. And this is why getting these results out here, doing what you're doing is bringing these clinical trials to a greater audience through this great podcast is really essential. So I certainly will say I hope it has leads to a change in clinical behavior. We make the assumption that the the positive results of this trial were due to patients being optimized on drug dosing. But there was a lot of other um, aspects of the trial that potentially could result in positive outcomes. And one of the things that had been discussed was maybe it was the the frequent follow-up and maybe that in itself was what was helping to reduce their risk of readmission. I guess, what are your thoughts there and how would you try to determine it if there this was more of a medication effect or if it was just a product of the close follow-up? And, and to piggyback on that, in the trial, the follow-up was with a cardiologist where, in at least in the health system where I practice, and I think this is probably common across the country, we work with a lot of advanced practice providers. And do you think that this type of post-discharge care plan would be something that advanced practice providers could help us implement? Yeah, so great points. And, and I'll just say, as I mentioned, I, I'm a big fan of the strong HF trial, but it's not without it, its flaws or caveats. And I think you're, you're really spot on in saying that it has been depicted by many people as a GDMT trial. Strong HF was not a GDMT trial. It was a strategy trial. And as you alluded to in your kind of introduction to this study, there were multiple factors that were brought to bear. And I don't think we'll be able to actually differentiate which of those factors contributed to the beneficial outcomes in this study. I will also point out it was an open label. People knew which group they were in. So some of the the tremendous beneficial effects on on quality of life, like the EQ5D and things like that, need to be put into kind of perspective of how you interpret quality of life data in an open label trial where one group of patients gets more care and the other kind of gets assigned to the losing group, if you will, or the usual care. So those are important caveats. And as you mentioned, there was very aggressive in-hospital initiation of titration of GDMT. There was continued outpatient of titration of GDMT that was very aggressive with frequent outpatient visits at one, two, three, six weeks and on. There was also naturetic guided therapies included. In this trial, unlike in guide HF, there was a lot of room to go in terms of the therapy. So this may have been an aspect where the natriuretic peptide-guided therapy was given a chance to actually have some influence. And then also, the care providers were not only just cardiologists, but many of them were heart failure specialists. So I think all of those things are, are crucial to the beneficial effects of that we see in strong HF. And it's important to remember that it is a strategy that we need as a community to try to implement as best as possible. Thank you. My final question is, again, this is the Heart Failure Society of America podcast and <laughs> trying to think about how this scientific information, you know, is applicable in our country specifically. You know, this was a trial that was conducted or they enrolled patients at least from 87 hospitals in 14 countries. And as we know, every country has its own method of providing health care and in our country, there are some barriers to providing optimal health care in regards to uh, access to medications, access to follow-up, and things like this. You know, I know it's not, a, it's not an uncommon thing for any of us. I'm sure that we, we have to jump through hoops to get, pres- you know, some of these medications prescribed for some of our patients. Do you feel like given those challenges that we face in the United States, 
that this type of a strategy would be realistic and be able to be implemented in, in most health systems? This is hitting upon the reality versus the hope, I think, is in many ways. And as you pointed out, this trial was actually conducted in 14 European, African, and South American countries. And 703 of the patients, or 65%, were enrolled in Russia. So it had a substantial number of patients enrolled from healthcare systems that were extraordinarily different than ours. I think as your listeners, you and your listeners are aware, there are substantial cuts to reimbursements for medical care that are pending. Pharmaceutical costs continue to be prohibitive in many areas. There are many patients who are uninsured, although less than previously due to kind of some some of our public health and government interventions. So this does require changes on multiple levels of our healthcare system. And the thing that is disheartening, or not disheartening, that's the wrong term. I I actually, I should change it around and say it's heartening. I know we have the people and we have the staff and we have the folks who are dedicated to the care of these patients. We just need to provide the systems in place to try to help them do their excellent care. And this includes active and aggressive involvement of the hospitalists and cardiologists during that inpatient phase, ideally supported by inpatient pharmacists, clinical nurse specialists in heart failure, and others. And then that needs to be transitioned into systems that allow for a one-week, two-week, three-week outpatient, post-discharge outpatient visits by a dedicated team. And I actually believe that it doesn't necessarily have to be a cardiologist at all of those. I think we can use our advanced practice providers. And we've learned that from our other examples. And I think the other thing I'd, I'd stress is all of this requires education of our heart failure care providers. And this is where I think the Heart Failure Society of America, through their Optimal Medical Therapy Certification Program and the more comprehensive Heart Failure Certificate Program, both of which can address the needs of these pharmacists, nurses, advanced practice nurses, hospitalists, and non-heart failure specialist physicians to try to provide them the tools to help these patients in, within our system. It's going to require, though, commitment by all of us. And I work in a, in a veterans affairs hospital where we're essentially you know, socialized medicine, and we are able to implement these kind of activities. So there's, you know, I encourage as we just went through an election, I'm not going to get too political on this, but I encourage people to vote and for this way to kind of encourage change and to work with the Heart Fair Society of America to try to help us initiate that kind of change to take better care of our patients. Yeah, wonderfully said. And there's so much that we can do with the society to try to make outcomes better for our patients with heart failure. And um, very excited to see the, the year that you have set ahead of us, uh, Dr. Tierlink, uh, as our uh, current president of the Heart Failure Society of America. I'm just hoping to continue the great work that uh, Dr. Drasner, who was also on this podcast, will, will, has already done. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Well, with that, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. You know, for Priya and I both, we really enjoyed our conversation with you. So coming up next in the podcast, uh, Priya is going to close out the show with the debut of her segment, From Failure to Function. Take it away, Priya. Hi, I'm Priya Mapli, and excited to share our new segment with you, From Failure to Function. The top takeaways in heart failure science from meetings around the world. 
At the time of this recording, we are on the heels of a fantastic American Heart Association 2022 scientific session, and we're fortunate to have our guests on the podcast today delve deep into headliners from this meeting, including Strong HF, revisiting a few other trials from the scientific sessions we heard, results from the Transform HF's trial. This was a very well-designed trial, studying the comparative effectiveness of torzomide versus furosemide in heart failure. The goal of this randomized parallel open-label trial was to evaluate furosemide compared with torzomide after hospitalization for decompensated heart failure in 2,859 patients who were enrolled over 60 U.S. hospitals. The primary outcome, which was all-cause mortality, occurred in 26.2% of the furosemide group versus 26.1% of the torzomide group, with a p-value of 0.77. The trial results note, amongst patients admitted with decompensated heart failure, post-discharge management with torzomide was not superior to furosemide, and really either strategy of whether it's furosemide or torzomide as a discharge diuretic are acceptable options for patients with heart failure. This was a very practical, pragmatic, and well-designed trial. And from this very popular clinical question, or answering this very popular clinical question, we've moved to another study that highlights some emerging technology in our field. These were early observations that were shared from the first in human in vivo CRISPR-Cas9 editing of the TTR gene by NTLA 2001 for patients with transthyretin amyloidosis with cardiomyopathy. These were early results from the phase one arm of the study, which was a single ascending dose study involving 12 patients. Initial observations were that, that the infusion was overall well-tolerated and they note that there is a 90% decrease in circulating TTR levels at 28 days. Our community is obviously excited about these results, and many of us look forward to hearing about the clinical outcomes from this cutting-edge science in amyloid heart disease. Changing gears just a little bit, another interesting trial was the comparison of outcomes in access to care for heart failure trial, known as the COACH trial. The study used a point-of-care algorithm to stratify patients with acute heart failure according to the risk of death and was a stepped-wedge cluster-randomized trial conducted in Ontario, Canada. During the intervention phase, low-risk patients were discharged early in less than or equal to three days and received standardized outpatient care and high-risk patients were admitted to the hospital. The co-primary outcomes were a composite of death from any cause or hospitalization for a cardiovascular cause within 30 days after presentation, and found that the primary outcome event occurred 54.4% of patients who were enrolled during the intervention phase, the phase that used the point-of-care algorithm, and occurred in 56.2% of patients who were enrolled who did not use the point-of-care algorithm. The major takeaway was that among patients with acute heart failure who were seeking emergency care, the use of a hospital-based strategy to support clinical decision-making in conjunction with rapid follow-up led to a lower risk of the composite risk of death or any cause hospitalization. The study was published concomitantly with scientific sessions in the New England Journal of Medicine in November 2022. The final trial I'll highlight was the very excellently named Ironman study. The study aimed to evaluate the longer-term effects of intravenous ferric Der isomaltose on cardiovascular events in patients with heart failure. This was a prospective randomized open label blinded endpoint trial done at 70 hospitals in the United Kingdom. 
Intravenous ferric deisomaltose doses were determined by patient body weight and hemoglobin concentration. The primary outcome assessed by the trial was recurrent hospital admission for heart failure and cardiovascular death. And additionally, a COVID-19 sensitivity analysis censoring follow-up was pre-specified. The primary outcome, cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization, for patients receiving ferric deraisomaltose versus usual care was 22.4 events in the deraisomaltose group versus 27.5 events per 100 patient years in the usual care group. The p-value for this was 0.07. Notably, the primary outcome when censored in September 2020 due to COVID-19 conferred a relative risk of 0.76 and a p-value of 0.047. The results of the trial did not show a statistically significant difference that iron infusion is superior to usual care among patients with heart failure and iron deficiency. However, the trial results were affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, and in a sensitivity analysis, the primary endpoint was lower in the iron infusion arm compared with routine care. Notably, most trials of IIV iron in patients with heart failure have investigated ferric carboxymaltose. Ironman is one of the first large trials evaluating ferric deraisomaltose, which can be given as a rapid and high-dose infusion. I hope you enjoyed these brief takeaways from our recent scientific meeting and look forward to bringing you more. On behalf of Michael and myself, we want to thank you for tuning into the Heart Failure Beat. We'll catch you next time with more exciting news and discussions from the world of heart failure. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the Heart Failure Society of America. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit hfsa.org slash hfbeat. Follow HFSA on Twitter and look for us at hashtag hfbeat.